So that's 1 Samuel chapter 1. There is a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihi, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, 
as soon as a child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his words. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Our Father, we thank you for these uh, strong and uh, powerful uh, narratives in the Old Testament. Thank you for these books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And we pray that over these coming weeks, we would learn about you and how you work. We would learn to look to you to provide the leader that we need. And we would learn what it means to follow that leader and to be caught up in the outworking of your purposes to take the gospel to the nations of the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, please turn in your Bible to the beginning of 1 Samuel. And if you don't have a Bible, the service sheet has the text printed on it. As we work through 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings, half nine, half eleven, um, we're going to be taking it in the narrative chunks that it's presented to us, and there'll be big sections. So if you can bring a Bible or use a Bible on your phone, that will uh, help us, especially as we go on, because you'll see uh, there's a lot of uh, printing uh, otherwise. Now, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel contain some of the most familiar Bible stories. Uh, they make it into every single children's uh, story Bible. For example, the calling of Samuel in chapter uh, 3, and uh, perhaps most of all, uh, David and Goliath, 1 Samuel chapter 17. But there is a much bigger story being told. Later on today, this afternoon, I'm going to record a video that will give uh, a fuller introduction to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and that will help us get our bearings. The video will be available on the Chalmers YouTube channel and church website along with the first uh, talk, this talk. And can I encourage you to watch that introductory video? Now, the title of the sermon today, God's Answer to the Leadership Crisis. God's Answer to the Leadership Crisis. Our text is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 11. Four headings. Number one, and you'll see these set out on the service sheet. Number one is the leadership crisis. Now, God made a promise, a foundational promise, a promise that is worked out through the storyline of the whole Bible and through history. And that promise was first made to Abraham. 
Let me read from Genesis 12. God said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now the development and the fulfillment of that promise made right at the start of the Bible. The development and fulfillment of that promise is the Bible's storyline. How God calls a people to himself from all the earth. It is the story of salvation. Told in the Bible, it is the story of salvation revealed in human history. It is this promise that God made first to Abraham that is embraced, for example, by the Lord Jesus when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. It is this promise first made to Abraham echoed by the Lord Jesus, that is fulfilled at the end of the age. Here's a reference from Revelation. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Now go back to Genesis when God made that promise to Abraham, way back at the beginning. After Abraham, there were succeeding generations. The promise was reaffirmed to Abraham's son Isaac, and then Jacob, and down through the generations. Then Moses, called by God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And then Joshua led the people of God into the promised land. And these accounts are told in Genesis, Exodus, that's Moses and the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God gives his people the law, Joshua, the golden years, Joshua led the people into the promised land, and then comes the book of Judges, just before 1 and 2 Samuel. Judges was the darkest time in the history of God's people. The period of the Judges was a long and sad time. A repeated cycle, God's people turned away from him. God raised up a judge or a leader to call them back. The people repented and came back, but once again turned away from God, often because the judge or the leader that God had raised up was uh, faithless. And the cycle went on and on. God raised up a judge. The people came back. The people turned away. And if we could uh, dip into the book of Judges, if we had time, events recorded before the events described in 1 and 2 Samuel, we would read of terrible things, shocking things that happened among the covenant people of God. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to the very end of the book of Judges, or if you have a service sheet, you'll see the verses uh, set out in the service sheet, the very end of the book of Judges. 
Now, Judges comes before 1 Samuel in the Bible with the little book of Ruth squeezed in between. Judges, or the period of the Judges, and 1 and 2 Samuel, the events described in 1 and 2 Samuel follow sequentially in history. The events described in the book of Ruth take place a little earlier in the period of the Judges. So you see the logic of uh, Old Testament narrative. You get the period of the Judges, followed by Ruth in the Bible. The little book of Ruth describes events that happened back in the time of the Judges. Judges goes straight in in history to 1 and 2 Samuel. Now look at the last verse in the book of Judges. The final verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a very telling, telling description of that period. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Bleak times. But God had not abandoned his people. God's commitment to his promise to bless his people had led him to intervene again and again through that time. And this commitment of God to his people, his undeserved mercy extended to them again and again, is reflected in the penultimate verse in the book. Just look at that. Judges chapter 1, verse 24. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In other words, to their God-given inheritance in the promised land. There is always hope because there is God. God keeps his promises. But at this point in salvation history, at the beginning of what is described in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, there was a leadership crisis in Israel. For in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God's people need God's king to lead them. God's people need God's king to lead them. Now that, if you like, is a summary sentence of what the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are all about. Now, the second heading, let's consider God's answer to the leadership crisis. And now we get into the text of 1 Samuel. Now, there is no doubt this is a big, big moment in salvation history. It's a big moment in the history of God's dealing with his people. It's a big moment in God's plan to take his saving message to the ends of the earth. How does God answer or address the leadership crisis? What does he do at this critical point? What does Almighty God do? Well, read with me verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel. You see it in the service sheet or in your Bibles. Here's what he does. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had none. 
This is what God does. Now, who are these people? And where are they from? Well, it's more like an episode of the archers than the outworking of the sovereign purposes of God. Now, I don't know if there's anyone here or listening online who is an Archers fan. Britain's longest-running radio soap with 19,000 episodes. And as far as I can tell, nothing has ever happened. The strapline of the program through history was an everyday story of country folk. A few years ago, it was updated to read contemporary drama in a rural setting. Ordinary, normal life. The beginning of 1 Samuel, God's answer to this massive problem in the history of salvation is like an episode of the archers, an everyday story of ordinary folk. Which is precisely the point. It is an everyday story of country folk. Because that's how God works. Again and again in history. And today still, he works through ordinary people. He works in the background long, long before his plans are seen in the foreground. He does not work in the way the world works. His leaders are not the leaders we would choose. In God's ways, the first will be last and the last will be first. The people God uses to work out God's purposes are the people God chooses. And in that, we see that it is God who is behind it all. God's answer to this leadership crisis, this big moment in salvation history, begins with this ordinary family. Now, if you know the story as it unfolds, you'll know that Hannah has a child, Samuel. She gives her child to the Lord. Samuel grows up in the temple. He becomes God's prophet. And Samuel plays a key role in God's rejection of Saul, who is the people's choice of king. And then Samuel plays a key role in the anointing of David, God's choice as king. That's how the story unfolds. But it begins as an ordinary story of country folk. And these ordinary folk who were caught up in this big plan of God didn't know what was going on, of course. Now, I've printed out in the service sheets the beginning and end of the book of Ruth. Just to have a look at that. Ruth is a little book sandwiched between Judges and 1 Samuel. And it reads like another episode of The Archers. Just listen to it. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, in other words, in these bleak times, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the names of his two sons Malin and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived for ten years. Both Malin and Kilian died, so the woman was left without her sons. Now, that's virtually identical in feel to the beginning of 1 Samuel. Now we're meant to connect the two. What's described in the book of Ruth is another thread in God's answer to the leadership crisis. It's another insight into how God was at work during this really bleak and difficult time. And if you know the story of Ruth as it unfolds, you'll know that Ruth is a child whose name is Obed, who is the grandfather of David, who is the king that God will anoint, the king that God will get Samuel to anoint. The book of Ruth ends with the genealogy of David. So there's another episode of the archers. Another thread, as God uses ordinary people to work out his saving purposes. Now back to 1 Samuel. And the events that happened are ordinary but really poignant. The story of Hannah and her husband, Elkanah, Hannah could not have children. She longed for a child. And in time, she did have a child, and his name was Samuel. She gave her child in the service of the Lord. He grew up in the temple away from his mother, became a prophet. So, on the one hand, this significant moment in salvation history is marked by God involving ordinary people in the outworking of his purposes. But on the other hand, this significant moment in salvation history is marked by the birth of a child to a woman who could not have children. And so the birth of Samuel was brought about by the intervention of God. That's what we're meant to see. Now, is that familiar in the Bible? Well, think back to Abraham, to whom God made the foundational promise. From your family line, Abraham, will come a great nation. But Abraham's wife, Sarah, was too old to have a child. But God intervened, and Isaac was born. Moses, the one who God used to deliver his people out of Egypt, 
that eventually led them to the promised land, then Joshua, then the judges, and then Samuel. The little baby Moses was miraculously preserved when his life was threatened. There's a pattern. Into the New Testament, John the Baptist, the prophet who came before Jesus, born to Elizabeth, who was barren. The angel said to Elizabeth, Luke 1.13, the angel said to, to Zechariah, Elizabeth, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. You will, and many will rejoice at his birth. Something big going on. And then the Lord Jesus, born to the Virgin Mary, the birth of their child, miraculous. The point is that we are meant to sit up and notice the unusual circumstances around the birth of these children at significant points in salvation history, all born with the intervention of God. And that is to make clear to us that God is miraculously at work in these circumstances. Without God, it would not have happened. And this text presents us with two things, that God works through the ordinary. Ordinary folk. But also God works in extraordinary ways. And of course, there is something far bigger going on here than the birth of a much longed for child to a woman who could not have children. Now, we've seen that from the context of the book where it sits in the Bible storyline. We've seen that from the period of history. We've seen it from other unusual events that are similar at key points in salvation history. And there are clear signals in the text itself. Let me just highlight a couple. Firstly, the phrase at the end of verse 19, the Lord, just look at that, chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord remembered her. Now, that phrase, the Lord remembered, is used again and again through the Old Testament to defer to God acting in accordance with his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. That phrase, the Lord remembered, is a signal that the Lord is acting to progress his plan of salvation for humanity. The second signal in the text, verse 23, Elkanah is responding to Hannah about her decision to keep Samuel with her for a few years before giving him to the care of the temple in Shiloh. Notice what Elkanah says to her. Elkanah, her husband, verse 23, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only, and here's a phrase that's used all through the Old Testament, about the outworking of God's promises to Abraham and to others. May the Lord establish his word. 
Now, there are clear signals in the narrative and in the context and from repeated patterns throughout salvation history that there is much more going on here than the birth of a much longed for and prayed for child. But it's to Hannah, this is very striking and very moving, but it's to Hannah, Samuel's mother, the mother who longed for this child, who sees more clearly than anyone that there is something far bigger going on here. And because it is her voice, the voice of this woman who had longed for this child, because it is her voice, that makes the point very powerfully. Let me read with us her prayer of praise in chapter 2. And if, as I read it, it brings to your mind Moses' song, for example, in Exodus 15, or Mary's song, the mother of Jesus in Luke 1, then it's meant to. Hannah and Mary sing the same song virtually word for word. Both caught up by God in something far bigger than their own circumstances. And they knew it. And they sang about it. I've uh, put that down as the third heading. The focus on a promise-keeping sovereign God. Read with me from the beginning of chapter 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah here is speaking very personally. My heart exalts. My horn is exalted. My mouth. My, my, my. She is rejoicing in what the Lord has done for her in giving her this boy. But then she moves in her heart to focus on God. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like, notice the shift in pronoun, our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. What she's saying here is don't think in these bleak, bleak days that God is not sovereign. Don't think the Lord doesn't know what he's doing. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And so on and so forth through her song. There are many attributes of God that Hannah refers and reflects on in her song. One of the great passages in the Old Testament, and Johnny referred to this, is Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That is a great message of hope for God's people to trust God, to look to God, to fulfill his purposes. Isaiah's message, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, came to the people of God in bleak times. And that passage in Isaiah has a repeated question. What is God like? 
or who taught him knowledge. And Hannah's song answers these questions. Hannah's song is a message of hope for humanity, for God's people, about God's sovereignty. Now, the last two verses of Hannah's song reflect on God's purposes in judgment and salvation. There will, in the end, be a great divide. God will judge those who oppose him and his people, but he will bless his own. Just uh, read with me verses 9 and 10 and prick up your ears for the second half of verse 10. He, God, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's the first time, the first reference in the Bible to the Lord's anointed or the Lord's Messiah. And the Lord's Messiah, verse 10b, is the Lord's King. It's the first time a song was sung about God's Messiah King. Songs that we sing again and again and again. The first time somebody sang of the Messiah in one of the bleakest times in the history of God's people. The leader God's people need is his Messiah King. Now, let me uh, draw things uh, together to a conclusion. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel begin in a bleak time. There is a leadership crisis amongst God's people. They were the days in which the judges ruled where people did what was right in their own eyes. God's answer to the leadership crisis then was to use ordinary folk to weave together threads of different circumstances and lives to further his purposes. And God intervened in very striking, supernatural ways in the birth of this boy. Hannah his mum was overjoyed at the birth of her child, but she saw and sang of a bigger story going on. But I want to finish with Hannah and her inspiring example of faith, because these are real people who lived 
She's a real woman who lived in a tough time for the people of God. She was ordinary. And we are real people living in perhaps a tough time for the people of God, and we are ordinary. And as we study the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, we will learn a lot about God's Messiah and his kingdom. As we reflect on David's kingship, we will understand Jesus' kingship better. We'll learn a lot about how God works. We've seen that today in the background. But we will also learn how to be men and women of humble faith. We will learn what it means not to do what's right in our own eyes, but to use our eyes to look to God. So as we begin to apply the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, consider Hannah as an inspiring example of faith. Number one, she was an ordinary woman. Number two, she knew grief and pain and heartache. She was not shielded from bitter things in life. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Number three, she was a godly woman. With her husband, she faithfully worshipped God. She never turned against those who turned against her. That's striking. She never resented God. She earnestly prayed to God. Number four, she kept her promise and gave up her child to God in his service. That's a very striking thing she did. Number five, she knew God in her mind and heart. She knew of his power and his majesty and his sovereignty. She believed God would keep his promise to his people. She trusted God to do things in God's way. She embraced the sweet and the bitter providences that came her way because she trusted in her God. God did not give Hannah a child because she was godly. In giving her a child, God was embracing her in the outworking of his promises. Hannah asked for the child. Her childlessness was a deep burden she bore, so she asked God, and God gave her a child. But had God not given her a child, God would have loved her no less. Hannah knew that. She tells us that. She sings of that. And she gave up her child to God. Why am I taking us into Hannah's heart? Because she is a real person. She is an example to us of a woman of faith. It is clear that this narrative is not about what gives us personally. It's not about what will happen if we pray. There have been thousands of godly women who have prayed and not been given a child. This narrative is about what God is doing to keep his promises to call a people to himself, to save people, 
to bless the nations of the earth, to pull the church out of bleak times to better times, to push the gospel through some new frontier. But Hannah is a real person caught up in that, who lived with pain and heartache, then joy, and then heartache again as she left her boy behind. But she is an example of a godly woman who waited on her Lord, who believed God, who embraced the providences sweet and bitter that came her way and concluded that God does all things well. And she was ordinary. It was a bleak time for the people of God. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But God was at work in the background long before the big step forward was seen in the foreground. And there were godly people like Hannah and Elkanah who did not do what was right in their own eyes but looked to God. And they were caught up in the outworking of God's purposes. And what were they doing? Going about their normal lives unaware of what God was doing, embracing the sweet and the bitter providences that came their way, not resenting God, believing that God does all things well. God was at work then, fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And God is still at work now, fulfilling that same promise way down the track in salvation history. God is at work in his ways, miraculously. But he uses ordinary people to work out his purposes. And I hope and pray our studies of this book will be a great encouragement to us not least because we are ordinary people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this powerful narrative in your word. It teaches us primarily about the kind of God that you are, that you are a promise-keeping God. It will teach us about how you answer the leadership crisis by providing your king, your anointed Messiah. but it teaches us too what it means to be men and women of faith. Not doing what is right in our own eyes, but looking to you, trusting you, living humble, faithful, obedient lives, conscious that you do all things well, that sweet and bitter providences that come our way are known to you. And to help us to walk faithfully, 
to live obediently, to look to you, to follow your word. And we pray that in difficult days, we would never, ever lose sight of your sovereignty and your faithfulness to your promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.